0: So, good evening, everybody. Um, I have some very serious topics for us tonight. And as I sat here with my very deep and serious topics, I looked out upon you and was filled with joy. Um, and the thought came to me to ask you, what shall we do tonight? Um, where should we go? We don't have to go here. And my, actually, my intention with these topics, I, I say it kind of playfully, is because my wish is that in exploring this a little bit, it can open up more room for each of us. If room is what your heart and soul and body need and want. And room, opening up room, brings more lightness, usually. Allows more joy, allows more of our natural joy to come through. So that's my intention um, with these topics, these big topics. And I'm just sitting here just to give me, indulge me one more moment, if you will, with myself. You don't have much choice because I've got the mic, so (laughs) sorry for the privileged spot here. it's a, so it feels very lovely to want to talk about some deep things with you and to have such a lightness in my heart you know often those two things get counterpoised sometimes you know deep things we have to get really serious and heavy about does anyone know that and that lightness is nice for a little interlude but it doesn't really go to where the the tough stuff is, and actually from the perspective of the Brahma Viharas, of these these four qualities that we've been looking at, this lightness which characterizes joy, a light touch, is not something that belongs to surface, that the light touch shares the very same depth and root as the compassion that is intimate with the deepest, hardest suffering. And that is why I love the Dhamma. It's not becoming someone light so we can sort something out. It's doing our work, doing our practice, and seeing that radical root of love, as much as it is sensitive, intimate, able to say no, be clear, it can have a very light touch. I think when I first came to Dharma practice, I preferred the... I don't know why I'm telling you this, but... Okay, one more minute on me. When I first came to Dharma practice, I I actually preferred the teachers who were like really, really serious. Um, I trusted them better than the ones that looked like they were having a good time. And it more reflects my my, um, family of origin who had appeared to have a good time quite a lot of the time and didn't get to the issues that I wanted to get to. So I sort of rejected the, a little bit the, the play and the lightness and the humor. But actually, um, let's have all of it. Let's have it, because isn't it so that when we're suffering, we don't really want the other to kind of land on us and labor on us. We want them there, absolutely. We want presence. We want to be met. We want to be seen. We don't want them to laugh it off. That would be terrible. But for me, I've learned to trust a soul that can meet even the hardest, heaviest thing without narrowing and shrinking around the issue. Right? So that the attention, attention doesn't have to constrain and go, Oh, and lock in. Does this make any sense? I hope so. So tonight I'd like to attempt to offer us an inquiry about Dhamma, so these teachings, and about these teachings coming to this culture. And this culture is many cultures, I know, but I'm going to speak about it as this lands of the Northern Hemisphere, of the Western culture. Um, so very briefly, the Dhamma of the Buddha, the Buddha's Dhamma and his brilliance and precision in pointing to a way to freedom. When his teaching has gone to different countries, different continents, you see it looks really, really different in the lands that it has gone to. So the Dhamma that you see in Tibet, and while that will have many variations itself, of course, will look very different to the Dhamma that you see in Burma, in Myanmar, which will look very different to the Dhamma that you see in Japan or Korea. It's not because it's been watered down or lost something of its inheritance. What we see is that the Dharma coming to a new land will meet the culture that it comes to. It will be uh, in dialogue with the particular sensibilities of that culture the particular gifts and offerings and flowerings of soul in that culture, as well as the vulnerabilities, the weaknesses, the blind spots, the limitations, the sufferings of that place. So, if the Buddha came here and I do this humbly, but I make one offering around this. If the Buddha could come here to this time, this era, this place, remembering that the Buddha's primary interest is to see and understand suffering and to point to the end of suffering. That is his, her, their primary task. To understand suffering, to see the cause of suffering, to see the end of suffering and the way to the end of suffering. And in the Dhamma teachings, there is a perennial route to this suffering, these k- the kind of existential crises that humans now are not different from humans then in that time that he came from. There's something that we still share in common of being born subject to aging and death and here we are, how to, how to be skillful here, how to meet the world in ways that reduce suffering and bring more happiness. That is perennial. But what would the Buddha see if he came here to these lands, this time, this era that is not the same as North India in five, six hundred before the current era? What gifts would he see? What sensibilities from the Western heritage? What blindnesses? What weaknesses, vulnerabilities? What would he see in the crises of the times that we live in? The fast, and rapid breakdown of our home, the ecological crisis that the science is now unarguable. It has been for a long time. But the speed and the potential collapse and catastrophe on current policy trajectory is not far down the line and is already happening for peoples in marginalized places, in areas of low um, coastal areas, or people poor or marginalized, and of animals and species and habitat. What would he look at? How would he respond? What would he say? to this outer, so-called outer crises. And the other sufferings of our era documented in newspapers and regularly increasing crises, inner crises of meaninglessness reported more and more in younger generations really breaks my heart and it makes sense also of meaninglessness, of crises of belonging, of crises of what to give myself to in this interval between birth and death. There are many analyses of our crises and there are solutions actually to our crises if there was the political will Collectively, we have the solutions on a technical level. But we've known for a long time, and something hasn't moved very far. And as the UN, uh, I think his name is Guterres, secretary says, climate change is happening faster than we are running, and we're not keeping up. There is, time, there is still time, not for everyone, not for everything. There is a difficulty for many and there will be more. But there is still time to turn this around from being catastrophic. Not much time. What would the Buddha point to for us that might help us? one thing, and there are many analyses of this crisis, actually one beautiful Dharma teacher points to the crisis of disembodiment of the modern person. The way that many of us have, uh, and that's not through our individual fault, but through, uh, and I may trace a series of events in our history, kind of risen out risen away, come away from imbuing the cosmos and the earth and society and the nature that we live in, imbuing that with meaning and subjectivity and intelligence and depth and interiority, to moving back and withdrawing all meaning and purpose and interiority to the sense of self. And this is not wrong or bad, there's a, there's, a, there's a history there. And at the same time that we, as a modern Western inheritors, as we probably mostly are here, at the same time that we developed incredible, incredible new worldviews, 15th, 16th, 17th century with the European enlightenment, the scientific revolution, the explosion of ways of looking at the world that have given us so much, so many advances in so, so many ways. At the same time as this, we see in the history the ascendancy of the sense of self, the sense of self when you look at the dictionaries and the, the writings, the language that we take for granted today of self-determination or self-image or self-anything. Think of, call me out one, self. Self what? Selfie, yeah, that's a really new one. <laughs> right. That's, really, that's just got in the dictionary from me. <laughs> but all of those that have that reference are really from the 16th century onwards. Right, they they weren't there before. So at the same rise, at time of the rise of the scientific revolution, for all its incredible gifts, there is this rise of this individual which has also got gifts. This is not self-bashing talk, and Dhamma is not self-bashing. But at that same time that all meaning and subjectivity came here, we and I say we collectively, many of us, our cultures, withdrew our allegiance to what is more than me, to earth, to society, to God, to the gods. This is not speaking for each one of you. There may be ways, of course, all of us to have any sanity. We have connection with earth, with society, with more than me. We have to or we would shrivel and dry up like a like a seed that isn't watered that goes underground but sometimes our heart might feel like that and I offer to you even if your heart does not ever feel dry and shrunk up or devoid of meaning and purpose in this cosmos or the most depth and meaning I can have is to serve my family, my people, my community. Beautiful. But if there is any longing or yearning for more, for more place to let your loving desire reach into the cosmos, if you have any desire for your own yearning and fullness and passion, to be able to move further into what is not defined, into dimensions of sacredness of spirit that cannot be necessarily finally delineated and agreed upon by the modern rational mind. Then keep practicing and keep checking and loosening any attachments that you may have lingering to any views that may be circumscribing and limiting the depth of your soul and spirit. One of the Buddha's gifts is his precision. His precision that attachment is a cause, a root cause of suffering, of grasping. Grasping is a cause of suffering. I dare to say one of the things that he would see if he came here is an attachment to a view that is still the dominant and default worldview that, while it has been challenged in physics, is still the place that most of us will default to as the correct way of seeing the world the correct way of seeing bodies, the correct way of seeing matter, the stars, the cosmos. The Buddha spoke about attachment to view as a primary uh, hindrance, a primary obstacle to freedom, to the end of suffering, to the ending of suffering. You sp- see it spoken about very, very often, attachment to view. What views might I be talking about and what he might see if he came here that would be different than some of the views of his time? And as I offer this, I'm not saying that the views of his time and his era are the correct one, not at all. Part of his gift is that he doesn't say there is one correct way of seeing the world. He says there are skillful ways of seeing the world. There are skillful perceptions that lead to the lessening of suffering. And there are ways of seeing and perceptions of the world and each other that are not skillful and lead to more suffering. That's his gift. Attachment to view, attachment to a way of seeing the world may be limiting very much more possibility and may be keeping us spinning in a crisis and an era that we need to move out of. So I'm speaking about what can be called the modern worldview that came to rise in the European. Enlightenment era of the 16th, 17th century. And I'm going to offer some of the main tenets of this view um, and see, I hope I've got them, see if any of them tick, you, you tick, you check for any of these, that you still think, yeah, 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 that's, that is the whole truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We found that out now, there's no, there's no question anymore. That's the truth. And as I offer this, we're not saying there aren't useful things in that view. The Buddha didn't say that. There may be skillful things that the incredible perspective that was gained in art, in science, in many disciplines in that era gave us incredible, started to give incredible new ways of coming into relationship with things but when that is posited as a dogma and a way to live and the truth, it is catastrophic. So the modern worldview has certain views in it. One is the separation between the human self and the encompassing world, right? So the sense is there's me, and that's where all the action kind of happens and sometimes with some others. And there's a kind of backdrop for my drama and it's called the world, right? This is the backdrop for my drama, the encompassing world. There's a separation between those two. (coughs) Number two, the cosmos is impersonal and it is unconscious. The universe is actually simply matter, which is sort of little molecules banging into each other. It's matter just in motion It's mechanistic, it's purposeless, and any beauty, value and meaning is not inherent in that thing. It is given by me. A human is the one who can bestow meaning and value upon things. They don't really have it on their own. Now, some of you might rail against that and go, no, or yes. Um, But it's not about just a view we try on intellectually. A view shapes our attention. And our attention shapes our perception. And our perception shapes our experience of the world and of self and of earth and of matter and what matters to us. So a view is operating moment to moment to moment. So check for this one, because often we default to it in the absence of another one. So the outer world lacks uh, intelligence, it lacks interiority, or meaning and purpose. Let's see, I've got lots of them here, I won't read them all. The world is something out there, and it is radically other. It is mechanistic, impersonal, unconscious, and it's the object of our powerful knowledge. Like, we can know that stuff because that's what we gained. We can stand outside of it and know it. We can study it. We can look at it under a microscope. We can do all kinds of things with it. We act upon that world. We are the ones with the intelligence that can act upon that matter that's out there. The world is no longer informed by numinous powers, gods, or sacred ends. There's no inherent meaning given. It's us who give it. Many, many more words here, but without giving a whole thesis on it. Max Weber said the modern world is a disenchanted world voided of any cosmic order or meaning the modern world is a disenchanted world and any sense of enchantment if we would see or feel the blessing of a tree or more it might be nice it might touch us but something in us may not be able to thoroughly go further with that we might cut off such perceptions at their root saying they're kind of naive they're not very intellectually rigorous they're not really the truth we now know the truth i'm not positing a different truth Here we want to open up and loosen the attachment to the view, to see what we might be cutting off of our own dimensionality, of our own soul. Couple more comments about this. When we believe that the whole truth is that the cosmos is impersonal, it turns, the uh, the idea comes that any spiritual faith and ideals they're just some kind of courageous act of subjectivity. That are constantly vulnerable then to intellectual negation. Do any of you know that, that there may be sort of burgeoning, sprouting, opening things in you that love and wish and desire in devotion to give yourself to what is more than you that may not be able to be seen and delineated? But either your own intellectual negation or the dominant culture's intellectual negation can come in and cut that at its root. I have one student who absolutely in a binary with this, of, um, and sure she wouldn't mind me saying, of this real longing and devotion to a sense of sacredness and spirit beyond herself, and, and the intuition and the, the, the sense of all of that, and then every time it starts to open out, something comes in pff, and cuts right through the middle of her and says, oh, that's rubbish, right, that's rubbish. What might be possible with a loosening the attachment to this view is to bring the critique and the rational mind, it is not to leave that on a shelf. It is to bring that gift together with our sensibility and desire, perhaps for more sacredness, more spirit, more dimensionality, more meaningfulness, more beauty to bring them together with, I would say, what the Buddha offers here, is a radical root and understanding of emptiness. That understand it so that there is not one perception that is correct. There are perceptions that lead to suffering, and there are perceptions that lead away from suffering. Bringing this radical root of emptiness with our contemplative arts because we could see, and I'll finish the philosophical part in a moment if it's it's losing anyone, we can see that in the postmodern narrative, they already have something of that. But what we lack in the Western canon of philosophy is the contemplative skill, the contemplative sensibility, The radical meditative skill in plunging the depths of perception, and seeing moment to moment the way we are implicated in perception. We are implicated in the world we see. It is not out there. And this is the radical teaching of the Buddha. He does. He says very clearly there is not. Well, he doesn't need to say it like that. The view is different. But there is not a world out there. And then my mind that can see it in good ways or see it in bad ways. No. The mind and the world co-arise. The mind and the world come into being in the same moment. We are not outside of that. Our attention, our perception, our participation with all of this equipment Inner and outer, our, pers- our participation in this is what makes our world. And this is radical. So if I'm losing, and it looks like most of you are still with me, which is amazing. But if I'm losing anyone of like, whoops, what, how could this turn into a philosophy lecture? Or, um, then just keep and stay with any place that sparks for you. Any place where your own resonance and meaning is um, ignited that's your spark to follow so when we see a view as a view and not as the truth then it can start to loosen right and that includes as people interested in practice also moment to moment where a view will inevitably be circumscribing what we can open to and what we can't open to. But let me move on from here. What might open up for us as either individuals, as a collective, if this view, as this view loosens in our um, participation in the world? I just want to, um, will I read that? No, I won't read that. Lots of interesting things to read, but I won't read them all. What might open up for us, um, and what might open up more for us, because it might already be open for you, but there might be more legitimacy and skill to go further with that. One thing that can open up is that our perception and our experience of things that matter to us can expand, can deepen. Our experience of the sense of self, our experience and perception of matter, of materiality, of earth, of death, of love, The things that matter to us we can come into relationship with and not have to stop with either just an intellectual inquiry and not have to stop with a contemplative inquiry that falls short of anything other than beauty and meaning and depth and resonance and sacredness. One thing that might open up for us or go further for us is that our encounter with what lies beyond our language can flourish. Wittgenstein, the philosopher, said, we must remain quiet about that which exceeds our language. And I say, why, why? And I might ask, maybe it depends on what languages you have access to. So maybe that's an appropriate humility to remain quiet about what exceeds our language. When what we come to that with only is the rational faculty, then it's appropriate to bow in humility and say, I will remain quiet about what lies beyond. But as practitioners, as inquiring human beings, one of the things we're doing is recovering multiple languages, not only our rational intellect. At the same time, as the rise of the scientific revolution that has brought so many gifts, At the very same time, there was a eradication in our European heritage of ways of knowing the world that were seen as equally valid, rich and important. In Europe, we see concurrent with this rise in the rational empirical, we see the burning of the medicine people of Europe, the eradication of those that held knowledges that did not easily fit with the ascendancy of the rational, the intuitive ways of knowing, the energetic and bodily ways of knowing, The imaginative ways of knowing where imagination wasn't just a little faculty of fantasy, but a deeply rooted human gift to be in contact with what is more than me. The emotional sensibilities, the heart, not only as emotion, but as an organ of knowing itself. The aesthetic, some of the realm of aesthetic sensibility. Many, many ways of knowing from our, and I say our, wherever we're from or our people are from, all of us, if we live here, we're also inheritors of this Western lineage. Our indigene, our root, our root that for generations and generations was our ancestors' knowing. What happens when we restore those ways of knowing together with the brilliance and the precision of the critical faculty and come to this era with a contemplative practice that allows us to look at our participation with perception of how we see the world, how it appears to us how meaning comes to be. What happens if we're willing to sit at this apex in time and look further? Go beyond where we've gotten to so far. And from my perspective, I'm not sure there's another option. So it's by necessity, but not only necessity, It's also a place for our deep desire. One analysis of the crises that we find ourselves in planetarily, one analyst says this is a crisis of misplaced desire. We see that desire run rampant in greed and consumerism and having more and getting more experiences or holidays or things or when the cosmos has been drained of depth and interiority and meaning, when the more than me that calls my heart has been delegitimized, when the sense of self has withdrawn out of nature and somewhat out of society, where does that desire go? Where does our desire for more go? Where does our imagination and our depth and intuition of the more go? Where does our desire for more richness, for riches, for beauty and for meaning, where does it go? When there is no ground of transcendent values, values, then the values of the marketplace have to fill that vacuum. When the human imagination and soul is not allowed or legitimized to be in love and devoted with the more than them that she intuits and is called to, then that human imagination is colonized and drained of all depth by the dominant forces of the market. It has captured our desire, given us the promise of what we should want, and it has turned a soul into a consumer. And as one of my teachers who founded Gaia House would say, this is no way to live. Some years ago, I had the good fortune to be in a conference, um, it's the one and only conference I've ever been invited to talk at my. Is that true? I think so. I was very excited. I'd never been invited to a conference before. And one of the other speakers was um, somebody that some of you will remember. Some of you may be too young to remember or not from this country, so you may not know him. But he was very featured in the news in the 80s. I think a lot. His name was uh, is Brian Keenan, and he's from Northern Ireland. And he was a journalist or a lecturer, I can't remember, and was in the Lebanon um, during the wars and was kidnapped and underground, kept underground in the dark, um, chained to a, um, a railing for, I think, five years, something like that. And he wrote an amazing book back then after he came out, yeah, you're, you're nodding, called An Evil Cradling. And it's about his whole soul's journey of this time. Um, And it made a big impression on me. He did, in the news that time, it was very, his name would always be in the news with the negotiations to try and get him out. So he was also a speaker at this conference, and he shared. um, The conference was actually about silence and the place of silence in a modern society. And he, of course, had had a lot of time in silence, but not voluntarily, in captivity and in really, really, really dire circumstances. And it was completely pitch black. Uh, He was underground, I believe. Um, And he said that when he came out, some years later after some healing and some work, he desired something about the silence he desired again which really touched me, you know, he might have had this... He did have a difficult experience, but there were things that grew in him and that he learned there also. So he desired to be on his own again in silence, and he said, this time, instead of a dark silence, I think I would like a light, white silence. So I'll go to Alaska. So he went to Alaska to new, and had the desire to go out on his own into the, the white. And he said something that really struck me, and he said... Um, And he was sincere and and trembling with, you know, still what must have been a huge impact in his body and soul. And he said, as I took the steps out into the big white expanse and I desired the silence deeply, something about the silence was calling me beyond. He said, I started to get really, really afraid. Um, And he said, and some of the paranoia came back from the time of having been in captivity. And he said, I had this terrible sense that something was watching me. Right, because that had been his experience, of course, at times, in captivity. He said, I got really paranoid. The sense of something's watching me. And any of you who suffer from paranoia will know how terrible that feels. And he said, but, but he'd made this agreement with himself to go further out into the white, the white silence really touches me. Something was calling him beyond himself. And he listened to that, even though that rationally doesn't necessarily make sense. right? And he said, as he, as he took the courage to take more steps out and let his feet land on the ground and take a step, take a step, sense, he didn't say sense his body, but that was the gist. He relaxed a little bit more into the place. And then he said, that terrible sense of something's watching me turned into a sense that something was watching over me and then he said and he was in this beautiful human tender spot as he's telling us this at the conference i had the sense something is watching over me he said and then he said yeah 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 but i'm not religious or anything just want you to know and then he carried on <laughs> and then he carried on his thing and it's like what is that why as modern people some of us feel like we have to do that somebody said in the group today one of the in the welcome at the beginnings what they realized was that something that hadn't been fully welcome in them was their deep desire for spirituality and the their spirituality and that that person said oh i sometimes i've kind of known it's there all my life but i've always laughed it off or just sort of made a joke about it or you know It can be hard for us as rational people sometimes to square that circle, (laughs) to to make sense of that. I was really struck as he said that. I wanted to ask him, Brian, why do you have to do that? And I totally understand it. I, I really see it. And maybe the word religious isn't the right word. Maybe he or we need more words or to reclaim words that we've left behind in previous generations that belong to that whole um, inheritance. I think of my mother's generation and her mother's generation. And my auntie, I was saying to Jaya earlier, my auntie didn't think of uh, people as consumers, uh, or end users. Um, She didn't even think of people as selves. She would always refer to a human as a soul. Oh, he's a kind soul. Ah, yeah, that one's a troubled soul. And it's the language only, but might there be something about reclaiming some of the words that got pushed out of the canon if we are someone who prides ourselves on being rational, which is a beautiful gift, but as a only way of seeing it is catastrophic lonely we will dry up and wither I'm thinking of the words you maybe you can maybe you have never lost touch with them maybe they're a regular part of your life or maybe for some of us they dormant somewhere in the soil of our being these words that belong to the territory of sacredness like blessing like sacred even like beloved there's one I like it sounds old fashioned some of them sound old fashioned the one i like is the word wait for it behold behold and the reason i like it is because there's not another word in english that i can find that 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 speaks to that experience of where my senses are arrested so in the the, the religious text it's like behold you see an angel behold something important's happening Behold. Behold is a word that speaks to that moment when we are stopped in our tracks and something more beyond speaks to us that we cannot necessarily put a word to define, but that is a place for our desire. When our desire isn't only colonized by flat narratives of where it can go, then it's free to shoot its arrows, its Cupid's arrows deep into the beyonds that beckon to us and call us. A place for our desire to take root and be fertile with our critical faculties as part of going further, not just restoring, I think, what my mother knew, although I think I would do well to restore a lot of what my mother knew. But even going further into territory of time and place and timelessness, maybe if we loosen more together this view, this modern world view, maybe our depression or our depressions, small or large, in our heart that cripple us at times. Or the not wanting to see another day, even if we're actually a happy soul sometimes. Maybe our depressions are not only seen as chemistry, mistake in the chemistry, although that can be really helpful. This is not an anti science talk. I have benefited myself from many of those things, but th- it's not only seen that way. Or it's not only seen as a product of what happened to us when we are little, and I too have benefited from narratives that have looked there too. It's not only seen as, oh, you haven't done enough practice yet, that's why you're depressed. But maybe if we loosen this worldview some more together, our depression can be seen as the product of a soul that has been constrained and bound and had its wings made to lead and its ankles bound by a worldview that constrained its desire, constrained its intuition, pressed down on its loving devotional heart and only gave it a small arena in which to offer that devotion. Maybe our environmental crises The outer ones and the inner ones. The ecological crisis. The word "eco," coming from a Greek word. Don't know how to say it. Oikos, something like that, meaning home, meaning habitat, meaning where we dwell. Where do we dwell? not just a world out there there's masses of ecosystems in here habitats that when we look deeper and further on any level there is more to find out on a on a on a measuring level you know the some of these marvelous new ways of thinking about matter even just on that level, when we look in, we find more and more and more and more space. More and more and more and more infinitesimally smallnesses. Such that I have heard it said on good authority that if we were to measure where a human being is, on a range between the furthest known reaches of the cosmos at the top of the range and at the bottom of the range, the most infinitesimally smallnesses that can be inferred through mathematics. Where would we be on that range? Thus have I heard from the bright ones who know these things, that we are bigger than we think, that we are somewhere just above middle And you think how big it is out there? That the implication is there are more smallnesses inside of us than there are bignesses outside of us. I'm glad you're chuckling. (laughs) What else can you do with that? What? No, no, no. I'm here and it's a really big world out there and I don't make much of a difference and I'm supposed to make a difference. but There's more smallness... Smallnesses inside of us than there are bignesses outside of us, and that's just from one narrative. That's like a up up to date physics narrative, right? Let's go further with all our ways of knowing. What if our imagination, our intuition, our emotional sensitivity, our energetic our intellect, our aesthetic sensibility, our love of ethics, our care about justice and about beauty. What if all of that was allowed to come into contact moment to moment with our foot touching the ground in our practice, with our breath as we feel it? What kind of encounter might we have with what is more than me? What kind of world would we see, inner and outer? What kind of meaning might we, might call our devotion? What kind of love might call us further? might be possible for us human beings individually collectively not that this is the only nexus of paradigms that will serve our world it is not we need many and multiple to work together but if these ones of Dhamma if these ones of where this Dharma meets this time and place, if that is something that sparks in your heart and soul, then follow that for your benefit, for the benefit of those you love and for your bold adventure into what is more than us and may this inquiry be loosening may it be clarifying may it open territory for us to travel in together if we if you wish Remembering that all we need to take care of right now is this breath, this body, this attention, this intention, this desire. And that way we can meet bigger and bigger things with a light touch. Let's sit together for a minute.